0: welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm your host, Charles Max Wood, and I am here uh, with Marc-André Cornoyer. Um, it's, it's been a minute since we've had you on the show or talked about any of the stuff you're working on. Uh, how are things going over there? In uh, are, are you in Toronto? I know you were no, in Toronto. Right? I'm
1: in, I'm in Montreal. I mean, Montreal. You got it right. I'm in Canada, but I'm in Montreal. Right. Yeah, I do go to Toronto sometimes. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, no, from Montreal.
0: Yeah, my grandparents met in Montreal. So. Really? Yeah, it's a very oh, nice yeah.
1: city. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, funny story. Um, and they, they they don't encourage this as much anymore, but my grandpa was a missionary for the LDS church. What? Really? Wow. And, and my grandmother had joined the church in France and then immigrated to Argentina and then Uruguay and then to Montreal. And she was working in the French embassy there. Really? Yeah, so, uh, did
1: your grandparents like this? This spoke French.
0: Yeah. Well, my grandmother did. Okay. My grandfather spoke a little bit of French. So. Okay. Do you yeah. speak
1: French? A little bit of French.
0: Uh, je parle un petit peu <laughs> okay. de français. Very, very little. Okay. Um, that's, pretty, that's still good. I, I studied French in high school, so I think a total I, I did like six years of French, and then I went and lived in Italy for two years. So. <laughs> oh
1: damn! Okay. It's
0: it's a it's French is a mix in my head.
1: Yeah, um, maybe. I guess. I guess I don't know. Like, if it's, I don't know if it helps with Italian. Did it?
0: Yeah, it, I, it did in the sense that a lot of the grammatical structures are similar. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, and a lot of the ideas in learning the language were similar, mm-hmm. and some of the root words were similar, mm. but not all of them. And so they didn't have to teach me. Oh, you conjugate w- verbs and things like that, because I mean, in English, we we just use the same word for all of the conjugations. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so
1: that's the hard part for sure. Well, yeah. I mean, it's hard for everybody. I remember when I, yeah. when, I when I started, like the the, the fact that I, because I joined like this, the startup community in Montreal, but everything happened. So I'm French Canadian, right? I'm mm-hmm. French. I've been speaking in French my whole life. I was raised in French, school in French yeah. too, and then when I wanted to start working in startups because they were using Rails and and mm-hmm. all the cool stuff, I had right. to. So it was my first job speaking in English. And I, oh, was, wow. I was so stressed because of that. I would practice like, the interview just because it was in English, right? I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure it was fuck it up. But it, it was not that hard. But the hardest part is the idioms, right? Or the expressions. Yeah. Oh, man, that took me like 10 or 15 years, even oh, today, yeah. right? Sometimes I have no idea what people are saying just because of the those like contractionary expressions. Yeah.
0: Probably yeah, there's something going the other show. way, but I, I didn't find as much of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But. Anyway, yeah, and you know you're you're in your French Canadian, um, and I think my what fourth or fifth great grandparents uh, were French settlers in uh, what is now Quebec. So yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, crazy stuff. Damn, but anyway,
1: like French history in your family,
0: cool. Yeah, yeah, it's funny because uh, and and then we'll start talking about thin and technology, but <laughs> no, that's um. Good too. So, so I'm, I'm a Latter day Saint and we, in, in the temple, we do, uh, proxy, um, ordinances like baptisms and stuff for people who have passed on. And so, um, it was funny because we had kind of exhausted all the stuff on my mom's side, which is where my grandmother, who's French, you know, all of her. Mm-hmm. And so, um, my uncle started giving us names of ancestors and relatives from my dad's side. And uh, my kids had gotten pretty accustomed to, you know, having French names come up fairly regularly, and then for a while it, it was my wife's family that we were doing work for, and so it was mostly English and like Scandinavian names, and then um, we started having French names come up again. My kids are like, "Oh, we're back on grandma stuff," and I was like, "Well, actually,
1: <laughs> this is on my dad's <laughs> yeah.
0: side, not my mom's side, because yeah. they they lived in Quebec, and then they immigrated." at least uh, really? like okay. six or seven generations ago, they moved to Connecticut and Vermont mm-hmm. and then kind of worked their way. Uh, uh, west, so. west. Okay, cool. Yeah. So and where do you live now? Where is it? I live in Utah. Utah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Cool.
0: So. Anyway, but it's, it's fun. It, I, I love this stuff. So it's, it's fun to kind of connect over it, but. It is Uh, interesting, for sure. I don't
1: know that much history of my family. I think we've been in the uh, Montreal region for a while, for sure.
0: Right. Um, Most of the stuff that I have now, granted, this is also run by the church, but FamilySearch.org is where I get a lot of the information Mm -hmm. on my family. Um, You can also find it on like Ancestry and things like that. But effectively, if you're interested in it, what you do is you sign up for one of those systems. FamilySearch is free. And if you can, if you know back two, three, four generations, um, usually you just have to connect to your grandparents. Um, and once you find your grandparents' records, then it opens everything else up. Oh, and uh-huh. Family Search has photos and um, stories and all kinds of stuff. So, uh-huh. if anyone's interested, go to FamilySearch.org because that's where, that's where I pick up pick up all that's this stuff. a
1: great ad right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, it was free. So. Okay,
0: ah, oh, no, okay, <laughs> yeah, okay, but anyway. So yeah, so um, yeah, I think we initially inter- invited you to talk about Thin, and mm-hmm. you were saying that there were there was somewhat of an interesting story. But I guess before we get there, what what is Thin?
1: Oh man, Thin. Well, well Thin still exists today. The, the uh-huh. repo is still there. It's still a gem that is, I think, is decreasing in pro- popularity for good reasons. Uh, but it's a web server, exactly mm-hmm. like in the same vein as Puma, Unicorn, right. uh, Falcon. And, although it's a rack server, right? Um, so, you can use it today, gem install thin, but it's uh, so it's. I started the project 16 years ago, so it's quite old. Oh, and wow. I wouldn't say like I'm, I don't actively maintain it, right? So, if, and I haven't had li- any major issues in, in a while. Some mm-hmm. people have helped me maintain it. Uh, Samuel Williams was a great help, like a, I think a couple, uh, a year ago or something, yep. did lots of cleanup. But I, I don't know if you know him, he created Falcon. He's I just driving. met
0: him. Right? You, okay. I interviewed him for the Ruby Dev Summit. Okay, he's really great. I mean, he's been so awesome. just the
1: work that he's done with the yeah. fibers and Fiber Scheduler and Ruby Tree is amazing. And yeah. That's just a fraction of the stuff he's been doing. So, uh, a big fan of his work. Um, but yeah, so thin is that it, it's actually one of. It, I think it was the first server that was a rack server at the time mm-hmm. when I created it. Rack was just starting up about 16 years ago. Um, the creator of Rack, uh, Christian, if I remember correctly his name, but, like created it. But he created some wrappers around the existing servers at a time. Like Mongrel was the big one.
0: Yeah, Mongrel was.
1: Yeah, huge. I forgot what the other ones were. Like WebRick, of course. It was WebRick uh-huh. we still have today. But it was like the only options that you'd have. Or you would run on the Fast on Rails. Yeah, fa- or Fast GI. That was the, the way that oh, you would oh, run yeah. your Rails application yeah. at the time. And it would crash all the time. It would crash. Oh, yeah. That's what people told me. I was not like part, I was very uh, I was young at the mm-hmm. time, younger than I am today, but I was starting my career. So I was not running like a very high traffic website or uh, like right. a, a company at the time. So I I, I still
0: remember though running Webrick or FastCGI and <laughs> setting up a watcher that would keep track of how much memory my Rails app was using so it could go and kill it <laughs> before it ran out of memory. <laughs> That's the story. Yeah. Everybody had those stories. Like it was like everybody, <laughs> some people say, Oh, I was this is the thread. It's
1: crashing and the thread's like faulting. And yeah. like a bunch of those stories get around. So I think that's how I got the idea initially, because I heard, right? I heard some people uh-huh. say, well, Oh, I'm using Mongrel, but it keeps crashing or fast CGI keeps crashing. I have to right. restart it. Like, the, like exactly like you said, people had cron jobs to kill it mm-hmm. and to restart it because yeah. it crashed all the time. And I heard that it was like Mongrel was crashing. And the, um, the treading code, right? For some uh-huh. reason. And I look at the code of Mongrel. And if you look, if you go back like to 15, 16 years ago, Rails was not tread safe at all. So you could not, no. like, uh, it was not reentrant, right? So you needed a mutex around mm-hmm. Rails before you call into Rails that's out of whips or did, there was a giant mutex. <laughs> I giant didn't know mob, that. Right? So to, so even if you had like Mongrel, was a, it was very equivalent. To Puma that we Uh have today, so not Puma is, I think, is a lot better in the design, but also like the performance. But like in the concurrency aspect, was very, very equivalent. But the problem was that, like at the time, I think that maybe threads were not as stable in Ruby, so they would Mm -hmm. crash. And then the thing that blew my mind is. We're, the threads are crashing and we're not actually using the threads, right? To, for right. the most because there's a giant block around Rails. So I thought mm-hmm. that is stupid. We got to get rid of this. So I, <laughs> my own idea was very stupid at the time. We say oh, I'm just going to create a server, no threads at all, right? Just yeah, get just, rid of the threads, no concurrency.
0: I'll, I'll just write my own web server. Yeah, no problem. Yes,
1: that's what I said. Like, I, my idea was a pure Ruby server that has no yeah. thread, no concurrency at all, just sequence, right? Get one connection, send it to the framework, and then back. And that's it, right? Just the simplest yeah. thing that could possibly work. And I said, well, that's going to be more stable, right? I, I didn't right. really care about performance. And then that's where I discovered about Rack. Um, uh-huh. And that's the cool, that's where I realized like that. I think that there was, I, I was onto something, not because of the performance, right? It's just the nice way of their API felt right. so great. Like if you were rewind back to that time where playing with this fast CGI, the CGI API of Rails, that's how you would, like if you were uh-huh. implementing a web server, like there was no a common interface. So Rails had to add some code in it to run on fast some code to run a web This was all like bundled inside Rails. There was no right. like uh, uh, API in the middle. And if you wanted to create your own framework, you had to redo this whole thing like from scratch. And it was it was awful. Like this mm-hmm. API was awful. Really awful. But if you introduce Rack, Rack was super simple, right? Anybody, I think, yep. can go, you look at it, you look at the Rack API, you can understand it. Like it's like five lines of code described the whole API. Yeah, I
0: remember when Rack came out. Yeah. Um, so did Zed write Mongrel in something other than Ruby? Is it written in C or something?
1: Yeah, so Zed Z Shaw was the creator of Mongrel. Yeah. It was very, very vocal and colorful, a like bit. a member of the Ruby community. Well, that was part of the, that was part of the fun too. Like I think at the time, we had Why the Lucky Stiff, right? Zed Shaw, yeah. like lots of people, very colorful, and that's that's why that's what got me into the community. Right. Yeah. I really felt like I could. It was. It felt more. Artful, I would uh-huh. say. I, think, I don't know if that's the right word, but like the, then scientific. <laughs> well, to me, it's much closer to how I think about projects, or right. at least uh, projects that I do, right? There are m- way more artful projects than uh, like scientific projects. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, show was a, was a big member of that. Yeah. And he, so he, he created Mongrel, and Mongrel, a large part of Mongrel was in Ruby. The part mm-hmm. that was in C was, uh, I, I think that was the big innovation of uh, of uh, Mongrel was that the, the parser was in C was very strict. So okay. it was kind of safe. It was the safest, mm-hmm. one of the safest parser at the time. Uh, it was based on Mongrel, uh, Raggle, sorry, uh, Raggle. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. But Raggle is kind of a, it's a state machine generator. So mm-hmm. you give it some rules and then it's going to compile right. to whatever language. I I don't know if at the time you could compile to Ruby, but you, you can today. Uh, but you, you would just like lay the rules. Like it's like a mm-hmm. Lexer, very similar to... Uh, Lex, uh, or but it so it creates a state machine in C, and then you can pass it a string and it will call the callbacks depending on what's inside. So that that allowed him to have a parser that was super strict. So it was very hard for somebody to craft like a request that was malicious because it was so strict. So that was the reason why Muggle was widely way way more secure than the other parts, right? So that that was also, I think, Zed Shaw's proudest part of the server for good reason, but It was a brilliant. Mm -hmm. Uh, combination of technology. I don't know that anybody before him had the idea to use Raggle for this type of work, but it was a brilliant. So I said, I'm going to pick this up. I'm going to pick up like the, the, the Raggle, the good part of Moggle, which is like the parser makes it super secure. I'm going to pick up like Rag because Rag is the nice API. So combine the two. And the only thing that was missing is how do you do IO really? Right. The networking right. that I did not know. And at some point I ended up, uh, on a, um, a li- um, library that was not very popular at the time. It is not popular no more at the time. Now it's called Event Machine, but it used to be very, very popular in a Ruby world. It was kind of a precursor to Node.js. It's the same mm-hmm. exact concurrency mechanism uh, as Node.js. And I think it was an inspiration to Node.js too. Right. Um, but now we are it's not actively maintained anymore. But back in the days, like lots of the, for example, at GitHub, uh, they were, they were using even machine for lots of the the stuff that they ran into because right. it was it was made it was an asynchronous server it was kind of a first async non-blocking I/O library to be used in Ruby it was very stable it was much more yeah. stable than Node.js at the time so if you wanted to do a sync I/O non-blocking I/O at the time and you you did, could not really use Node.js at the time it was leaking memory everywhere right. and even machine was a much better choice
0: yeah event machine was. Yeah,
1: it was. You can see so, it in it was, some really yeah. interesting
0: places too. And it was crazy
1: fast. And I mean, oh, I, yeah. I take no credit for the, the like. I think the reason that it didn't picked up is because people would rent the benchmark were crazy at the time compared to the other servers. It was much mm-hmm. much faster. I oh, take yeah. no no credit in that. This is all a credit to the people who <laughs> who created even machine. I just plug. I think that's mostly what I've done in my career, lots of time, right? I think I I don't think I'm good at like inventing those things, but I think I'm good at uh, merging like existing technologies, right? Integrating them, which I did there, like it's even machine rack and the mongrel parser that were like I thought that were those were like brilliant technologies, so why not merge them together? And that's what I did
0: with that project. Well, a lot of times people do things, and yeah, everybody's like they're so crazy innovative, and then if you really boil down what they did, yeah, it's this thing and this thing, and I put them together, and nobody had ever done that before.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think anybody... It's something I see often, right, with the yeah. more junior engineers or people who are starting out yeah. is like, ah, oh, man, I, wanna, I don't want to... This already exists. But usually, I don't care. You should not care if it already exists. Usually, right. if you just tweak or you focus on one specific feature or you combine it with another idea that you have something else, that's enough to make something mm-hmm. that can become extremely popular or very useful to lots of people. And that's yeah, what realized pre-order you
0: yeah. on. Yeah. In that particular case, a lot of times that's really what it boils down to is there are people that have this one particular problem and they're using this thing that solves like most of this part of the problem. And yeah, you, you make this other really painful piece of the problem go away and wow, yeah. you innovated, you know, but that's really what boils down to you. Again, you just solved a problem that,
1: yeah, I think there are multiple reasons to that. Like, uh, it's but also, it, I mean, it's um, it's how software works, right? You start yeah. with something extremely simple that works really well. The API is extremely clear. It's beautiful, right? It's a piece of art. And then somebody else comes in. Oh, if only you could add this feature, and <laughs> it would be uh, useful yeah. to me. But yeah, that feature. And that's how I think we we start off with like very nice software that is simple and performant, and we end up with something that is not so good, right? So that's why right. we. We'll, I think we're we'll always have opportunities not only like, like in business but also like in, in open source, right? If you want to do open source but you're kind of worried that, oh, this has been done already, it's kind mm-hmm. of easy because if you're starting over with some with minimalism or simplicity in mind, you can always like find this. It's, then it's up to you to keep it simple, but. That's how projects are good initially. Is because they start with just the strict minimum. Right. That's, the, that's the soul of the product, right, or the, the project, mm-hmm. and then you just focus on that and remove all the crap. And right. that's how you end up, I think, with a much better project. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Does this get us closer to yeah that focus, whether it's performance or you know uh, threading stability or yeah. right? I
1: think it, it, all of those the qualities that you mentioned, are yeah. all usually all boil down to simplicity, right? It's, right. Kind, it's kind of hard. If you want something that is fast, simple, and and a nice API or a beautiful, like when I say beautiful, I mean the API is nice right. to use and look at. Uh, I think those are all because like the, it's simple,
0: right? It's, the, yeah. this, the software is simple. There's no other way around it, for sure. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So getting back to kind of the story behind Thin, so you take Event Machine, you take... Um, I can't remember the other pieces you pulled in. The, the parser the, from Mongo. The parser
1: from Mongo, which was built on Raggle. This was the uh-huh. only part that was coded in C. But, of course, like the internals of even machine were all in C. Right. Uh, it's C++, actually. So that w- I did not know anything about that. And right. uh, the other part was Rack. Yeah, just the right. API, the Rack API. and um, But at the time, yeah, I think... So I did, the, the main blocker with all this, with this architecture that I decided on, was that Rack was just started, right? So you, right. It, it looks... The, the API is simple, but that's on a server side. Now you have to make all the frameworks and all their like work with Rack. So I had to create the first ever like Rack handler oh. and, for Rails, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then once that was that the worked, like, and, but it was not mm-hmm. like. the you can imagine, right? It's an adapter on right. top of what uh, the old fast CGI. So it took some time right. until I think um, it, it was kind of. Um, it did not feel like a good API until Rack official uh, Rails, sorry, officially switched to Rack, and that's where yeah. I think like it became clear that this is the future. That, that that's the way to do it, and especially people I think realize this not only because of the Rack API but the, the Rack middlewares, right? That's that's the right. other key thing. You just learned about the Rack API, so that's that's simple. But then you learn that yeah, it's the, the same exact paradigm that you use to introduce Rack middlewares. and this mm-hmm. is some this to me like is one of the really big innovation that is an idea that is so simple. And now you see this middleware concept everywhere, right? As yep. It's a node, it's in Rust, there's a tower. Mm-hmm. They're all using the same exact concept of wrapping the previous right. uh, um, app or endpoint, whatever, middleware into the previous one, exactly mm-hmm. like Rack pr- uh, created at the time. That was 16 years ago, and we're still right. using that idea today. So I think there was a, a brilliant API. That, that was yeah. the core. I think this the one of the major reasons that RackBee, all of this became successful is because of Rack and the simplicity of
0: it. Yep. So w- did Rails adopt Rack when Merb was merged in, in Rails no, 3? No, I think it or was before, before that. I, uh, I don't know. If, Maybe I think,
1: I'm pretty sure it was before. Yeah, I think okay. I'm pretty sure it was before. I don't remember who did it, but I remember, yeah, it was... Was done as a push, just because mm-hmm. it was a nicer design, right? To say, well, right. we can refactor using middlewares afterwards, mm-hmm. and each of the parts are more modular. So just just with that in mind, it's much you get end up with a much better design. you right. Mm-hmm. You, you let's say that the I think that was the big push why they did it initially was because well, some apps want to run some API like a Rails mm-hmm. API stuff that we still have today. That was the main push behind it. That if you don't need cookies, like if you're just writing a right. based on API, well, that's pretty easy to skip if you're implementing it as the right middleware. You just mm-hmm. don't use it. You don't insert it in your middleware stack, and that's it. You don't right. need to do anything else. You don't yep. you need to have a bunch of ifs all in your code. It's, it's very simple. So yep. I think that's why they refactored it initially. There was, I'm pretty sure that was before Merb, but don't, mm-hmm. don't quote me on that. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I don't remember for sure. I remember when it came in, and I remember... Pulling in some middleware and writing my own, and yeah, yeah it was very handy.
1: And, and I would say, you know, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure now. Like, uh, rethinking about it, that Merb came afterwards, and I'm pretty sure too that Merb be, came to life because it was so simple now to create a framework, right? Right. So, so would because run of black,
0: yeah, yeah, it would run on standard stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. And Merb initially was just Rack plus ERB. That's why it was called, it mm-hmm. uh, would run on mongrel ERB, or maybe right. it was not Rack anyway. So that was, it was returned to a much simpler like framework right. in a case like that.
0: Right. So you get Rails to run on Rack. Um, then what? Now you're um, home free? No. Just, <laughs> not that simple. well, uh, well um, I oh yeah, here's,
1: I have a funny story. Like, it's me. I don't know. <laughs> it's going to make me sound like very childish or whatever, but I don't, I don't care. So me and my friends, a funny story about then. when it started before it became popular or like in the first few versions, I would test it with some people who had like bigger websites than mm-hmm. me. And we thought it would. Initially, it was not called Thin; it was called Fart because we thought that was to be so funny to run a Fart cloud and run in cluster <laughs> mode, and we would just chuckle all day about this. But then I, <laughs> I came to realize I don't think I, I don't think I want to be associated with a project that's called Fart, and the people keep the, and you. Know, so I, I just I think just before pushing the button and publish making it to a public repo, I changed the name right there and then, or something. I think it was a good decision in retrospect. But I still find it funny that it was the that was the initial name, right?
0: When we tested it internally in internal yeah. on some very small website. Oh, and, I would have been. I would have loved to fart some uh, apps out there. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: <world>. Yeah, <laughs> running a fart cloud—that was the the only reason why it was called this. But yeah, <laughs> it was kind of yeah. I think there's no way we're going to get into the enterprise if that's what it's called. Fart. So change the name. Yeah. And the app, so I initially, uh, at that time, I think i, I uh, that's where I created like a, I had a semi-popular website, it was called refactormycode.com where you would uh-huh. post refactorings and stuff. And I, I think that's where I started, ter- yeah, I'm pretty sure that's where I started testing my server. And mm-hmm. and it did okay. Uh, it was much more stable and I would uh, nail out the uh, the issues and stuff. But where it started picking up is uh, like when people from the Ruby community at the time they picked they, they noticed the project and they started uh-huh. using it in some much bigger stuff. Like the lots of there are a few people at Engine Yard, which was used to be right. really big at the time. I think it still exists
0: today, but I think they're still out there, yeah.
1: Yeah, there was some like the, the people there were, were awesome. They were really mm-hmm. driving the Ruby open source community forward and they just picked in yeah. and said, Well, we're gonna we're gonna run our customers on it and like they helped like figure out the issues. They would report bugs to me, help me figure it out. Tested, like I was just blown away at the amount of work that it would do and that people would like really believe in the project, and that would drive me to work on it more and more and stuff yeah. like, and think about like new and innovative features. And that's what I would do. I would work on weekends and nights every night on this because it was so much
0: <laughs> nice.
1: And so that's I think that's how it picked up, right? Initially, lots of people at Engine Yard, lots of people uh, everywhere, and and eventually. Uh, the people at Iroku, when they launched Heroku, I don't know if, uh, how much of this is known today, but the initial version of Iroku, if you remember, it was just Ruby apps, all right, right, uh-huh. Ruby apps, and so and you had no choice what server to use. It was using Thin for all right. the absolutely all the apps. So if you ran your in a, like in the five or three first years of Iroku, if you ever used it for running your app, it would run on on Thin, and that was a big driver. I think to people using it, and then it became used, like I said, Engine Yard, VMware, mm-hmm. all, all the big companies started using it. But, and that's how we picked up and uh, it became a, a successful open source project. Kind of Still, because of the people at Engine Yard, mm-hmm. mostly.
0: Yeah, I remember I remember when they had, uh, I can't remember if it was RailsConf or RubyConf. I want to say it was RubyConf in San Francisco. They did kind of a startup tour so you you'd get it on the bus and you'd go to Dropbox, which was using Rails, and then you'd go to yeah, Engine Yard, New Relic. Oh, and, yeah. uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, what year so, was that? That's I didn't know know that.
0: Okay, that was a long time ago. I think it was like 2008. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, it's around the same time. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it was just an exciting time to be involved. I'm I'm a little curious. So you go you go from hey, I'm going to try and bolt this stuff together to hey, this stuff has to use rack in order to be able to use thin to, okay, now we're getting adoption of both rack and thin. So how does that change the equation for you in maintaining thin? Like, you know, now you're not, it's not this mystery of how do I get this to work? Now it's, uh, oh, okay. Oh, well, how do I maintain it from here?
1: Well, I, I don't, it has never been like a big burden. Yeah. I don't know. I don't relate at all to people saying like, uh to adding bad experience with community with open source community. And I would just, uh-huh. if somebody like send the PR that it did not agree with, that would just not merge it. And uh, right. I, I don't know, like it, it felt really fluid at the time when people would just use it. And it, it was clear to me, like when there's a feature that was, you had to use it, right? You had to implement mm-hmm. it, for example, for example, like writing the, the body to a temp file because it was too large in memory and stuff like that. I was, yeah, of course I have to do it. I was usually... Uh, like copy what other servers would do. That's what I would do. Like start the implementation there. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, it was not really. It was not really a burden. A burden, right? There was no people like it, that. Was the thing that surprised me too. Maybe because like I made a big disclaimer to say, well, it's still. It still felt like beta software to me. And I said, <laughs> all right, So you, it's your. If you want to use it in production, like you can do it. But I'm not responsible and stuff. But I mean, I've never had any bad experience or people like complaining or asking, faulting me for issues that it would run on this. Sometimes there would be bugs and issues. I would fix them. But maybe that was why, right? Because I was so into the project that if there was an issue that was reported, I would just, I was so driven that I would fix it the next day. So who's going to complain if it's fixed the next day? So I think it's maybe that's where sometimes frustration comes on with open source, right? Or you just, Mm -hmm uh people lose interest and it's no, it's natural right i've lost interest in things, so i'm not working on it anymore right so maybe yeah. that's where you start to see frustration but there was none of this initially it was like just wonder and like this is cool like everybody was like very yeah. joyous about the project so yeah, it's yeah. only good memories
0: from that so so yeah so i like that i really like that cuz i know i know different people have had different experience with open source i mean I've talked to some people where the project got big and it kind of took over their life. I know people who um, they poured their heart and soul into it. And then, you know, some bad actors in the community came in and complained about some things and just made it not worth it to them to continue. Um, But it sounds like for you, it was just, you know, you worked on it until you were done working on it.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it was important to me that I created, so my goal, one of my personal goals, like For doing this, or maybe I did not know really at the time. Well, I mean, my goal was really to do a server that was more stable. But eventually, I really wanted at a time in my career to make something that was popular because I wanted to create software that I felt was useful to lots of people. Right. Mm -hmm. I wanted to create some useful work. Really. Right. I really did. Right. So that was driving me a lot. But after some point, right, I realized I don't need that many people <laughs> to use my software to be happy. So I did. I stopped caring at some point that people would truly use it, right? Or I think I I was very fortunate to get this success very early right. on, right? To get lots and lots of to get it very very popular, and then I said like it was felt a bit like a checkbox to me. I said okay, I did it. Now I don't care if you use it anymore. Right? If it's not for you, you just don't use it. There's, and I think the other advantage too is because of rack. If you want to switch to Puma, it takes one mm-hmm. line. You don't, right. You just switch. Just switch. It's going to take you five minutes to switch. So don't. Yeah. Right? So you're not. There's no lock. You're not locked into the server uh, um, until you start using some of the built-in features. So maybe that played into it, right? So I think that's the other key advantage of like, having nice APIs that you can mm-hmm. swap to something else. People are not happy. Well, it takes five minutes literally to switch to something else, right. and you, you can try it. So maybe that played into it too.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, but it was
1: about like for me, it was all about like pushing the boundaries of the server, like implementing like cool new features that were not uh, right, had not been done before. But at some point, that reach like I think I explored all that I could explore in a Ruby server, and I eventually got bored of it. Right to say, uh, I said, "Well, I think if the project is this is done for me," and I fixed a little bit or merged, and people, other people, started contributing. Other mm-hmm. features, like along the lines of async programming and stuff
0: like that. But for me, it
1: was kind of done, and I moved to other
0: stuff afterwards. Right. So, yeah, I was going to ask, so when you say that you're not maintaining Thin anymore, was that like an active decision, or
1: no, did you no. just kind
0: of run out of things you wanted to do with it?
1: Yeah, exactly. I ran out of things, and it was... Uh, nothing major happened. No major issue. So I mean, it's it's been very stable. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's done. Software. It's done. Software. Yeah. So it's not. You can still use it. It still works. But it's done. So not going to add to it. Not going to remove it too. So unless I mean, if there's an issue, if I find something else happens, maybe that changes in Ruby that makes it unsafe or something like that. Of right. course, I'm going to like you're gang the gem and stuff like that. But that's
0: not, that has not happened. That makes sense. So what are you working on now then?
1: Uh, right now, well, we're, uh, right now I work on uh, at Shopify. I work on storefront, like which is the like the website that we uh-huh. uh, give to people, and like yeah, I worked a lot on the um, improvement. So the, the so when I finished, in the other thing that I really fell into that I drove a lot of my passion projects were programming languages, compilers, and stuff like that. So oh, ever okay. since that that time, that maybe like twelve years ago, I've always been like say I wanted to. Focus and explore various types of projects for uh, com- around compilers. Mm-hmm. And when I joined Shopify about three years ago, um, I had this idea, which is probably like a bad tactic if you're interviewing for a company. But I was pitching my idea when I was interviewing at Shopify <laughs> that I wanted, to, <laughs> uh, right? I wanted to compile liquids. So you know, liquids. They're uh-huh. templating language. This is very popular. It was very popular yeah. in Ruby because it was it, a it came first, out
0: of Jekyll. Is that where? It no, that's the inverse. Yeah, Jekyll used Liquid. Yeah. Oh, Jekyll. Yeah, it was Shopify that pioneered it.
1: Yeah, Shopify created Liquid. Right. Yeah. It's because at the time, like, um, there was no template. You could not use ERB, right? Just because we right. we have the people, the merchants. If you're a user of the of Shopify, you have to write. You're writing yourself as a user of the platform. You're writing a template, so it has to be safe. So you cannot right. like ERB is based on. Eval. not let
0: them insert Ruby because that's not safe. Exactly,
1: you, can, you call it's based on the eval. So if you allow anybody to execute Ruby code, it is like the biggest security all ever. Yeah. So, uh, so that that was mandatory that we that they came up with a, uh, like like a safe templating language. It was created by the founder, like Tobias Toby Lutte, who created like a, a Liquid at the time. Mm-hmm. but i looked at it it's open source you can look at it right uh, right now and but when i looked at it i said well that's a walking tree interpreter that's not the best way to do it right see so it's it just if you know about those it's like it just parses there's always like in a compiler there's usually two or more phases where first you parse the la- the the the, the program into an AST, that's like a tree representation, mm-hmm. and then you can parse it to other formats. And then there usually there's an interpreter or another compiler. Right. And like Liquid works with you just parse it to an AST, and then you walk the AST down to execute mm-hmm. the program. Right. That's the most. That's how actually Ruby one dot eight or one dot nine used no one yeah. eight I think used to work. It was a walking tree interpreter. We just parse the AST mm-hmm. and walk down to it. Sounds like,
0: like a simple enough thing to write.
1: It is the most simplest thing yes it's good it's a very good starting yeah. point it's just that it's not the most efficient way right. to do it so if you think about any language that we have today like any anyone like java or php mm-hmm. they all some of them I'm not going to say all but some of them like started this way like ruby exactly but eventually they evolve out of it because it's not efficient right, right. having a tree structure you can imagine you jump in memory from there so it's all to consume lots of memory but it's not efficient mm-hmm. to jump from like one right. address to the other one so the most efficient way, or the, the next step afterwards, is you compile to your custom bytecode, where it's very linear in memory, right? So it's easy for mm-hmm. the compiler to know where to go next. Okay. And stuff like that, and it's much more compressed in memory, so less memory and faster. So it's kind of a, a no brainer decision. But yeah. then that means that you have to build an interpreter that interprets the bytecode. You're kind. Of, and it's called a virtual machine because you're kind of mimicking what the what the, the machine, the CPU on your machine, is doing. Right. So my idea was to do exactly that for Liquid, which was not a very, uh, not a very common thing. I think to I don't know of any other template language that do this. Right? So normally, right. it's a all language do that mm-hmm. programming language, but Liquid is not a programming mm-hmm. language; it's a template language. But I still believe like that's the way to do it uh, is to compile like to an intermediate format bytecode. So I entered in Shop- to Shopify with the the goal of doing that, or with the idea at least pitching the idea. Uh, and eventually, we turned that into a real project, which is now being shipped uh, live. And we're going to talk more about this as we go. But now, all the templates, if you're rendering a website, is being uh, is being compiled to an intermediate format and being evaluated. Oh, nice! So it's much more performant, but also that I think that leads to a better design too, because right things are. It's a bit like RAP, right? We're going back mm-hmm. to niners. Is now you have like a pipeline of stuff that you compile, so it's easier right. to do other steps and do optimization. Inspect the intermediate representation, right? Because you're, hmm. you you kind of have you say, well, I'm going to execute on this other format that is much more optimized. But before right. that, you can do other steps to optimize it further, and so that's why all languages do it. That's cool. So that's one of the the, the things I'm working on, and um, also exploring ways around. It's possible. and working on a new server for Ruby, and also working with the with Rust around that. There's we were using Rust a lot at Shopify. Mm-hmm. And, and Rust in combination with Ruby. If you've never done that, it's really cool. It's getting easier I've and easier. By thing. It. Yeah, you should like if people like uh, listening to this, like it definitely give a look to Magnus, which is a, a Rust crate that is makes mm-hmm. it extremely easy to build like a uh, uh, not, not C extension, but native extension in Ruby, right. like expose an API from Rust to Ruby. So it's very, it became very now. Uh, if I rewind back like a uh, 10 years or 15 years ago, if you wanted to build like a uh, a Ruby gem with native extension that was like it uh, was very hard, right? The yeah. API was unclear. Yeah, the docs were. There was no official doc. You were kind of mm-hmm. on your own. Or how I did it, and as I looked at the code of Ruby itself to see how I did it, right. and tried to sometimes backtrack to say, "Oh, how could I do this outside of Ruby?" It was so hard. But now, like it seems like we're uh, in a really good spot. If you look at yeah. Magnus, is extremely so. It's so it's beautiful when you write something like in, in Rust and it compiles to a native extension in Ruby. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of, you get a best of both worlds, like from Rust and Ruby, where you get the the, the, the safety of Rust, and the, some, maybe the performance of it too, and then you get the nice API of Ruby on the other side. Nice. I'll have
0: to look at that. Maybe we'll do an episode on it.
1: Yeah, that's very, I think that's, the, to me, if you ask me, like, well, what are the exciting stuff happening on Ruby these days? Uh, I think one, one key one, right, is the, the, the using Rust more, like on mm-hmm. the side to build the native extensions, uh, is definitely one of them. And it may be in combination. I'm hoping that uh, in combination with Ractors, I don't know if you've looked at the time to look at Ractors a little bit, but there a are a little bit, not and, a lot. And, and many threads too that came up. I think many mm-hmm. threads was enabled in 3.3. With Ractors, I think they were introduced, I don't want to say anything uh, wrong, but I think what they were introduced in 3, uh, 3.0, I think. So if you if you never heard about those, like it's, a Rector is kind of the first time in Ruby that you can create, you run something in a thread that is not bound. That usually, right? That's the kind of the the asterisk is usually is not bound by the JVL, the global VM lock. It's not always true because right. things are there. There are some issues around that. There are some bugs, of course. Uh, but that's the idea that you could run some really two threads in Ruby mm-hmm. that are not bound by this lock. That that is a problem that we're facing today with concurrency and parallelism in Ruby.
0: That, that's that been an issue that we've been talking about for years and years and years. For
1: years and years. And that's yeah. the that's the thing, right? Because I think the issue that we have is because of lots of the code, especially native extension like in Ruby gems, we've built those with in mind that, oh, it doesn't need to be thread safe, right? Because Ruby mm-hmm. has a JVM lock. So lots of, of those gems with native extensions have been, have been built with this idea that it does not need to be thread safe. Right. So that I don't see how we could make that work except if you built your native gems with Rust because Rust mm-hmm. ensures that when you compile the code that your code is thread safe. With the If you know a little bit about Rust, like the send and sync uh, markers that you mm-hmm. you get, the, this, the compiler will tell you as soon as you compile it, it's thread safe. So then you can build native extensions in Ruby that are guaranteed that compile time to be thread safe. So technically, right. this should be easy to be used across rectors and stuff like that. So I think, I don't think we're there yet, but I, I can see a very bright future for concurrency, right? Parallelism, concurrency, and, and all that stuff like, coming up to, uh, in Ruby with like reactors and the many threads. If you, many threads is kind of this other, this idea to go back to uh, green threads. Now, because now, like, if you create a thread in Ruby, it's going to create a native thread, but it's still bound mm-hmm. to the, by the GVL. But it, with this idea of many thread that you can enable, enable now with Ruby 3.3 is you could flip the switch. And all the threads that you create with Tread new, it would be green threads. So they're not uh, attached to a native thread. Right. They, and then the scheduler of Ruby takes care of doing the context switching. So it's much faster. And it's also cheaper to create threads. So right. technically, they should, if we enable this, technically, it should be, should be as cheap to create a fiber as it is to create a thread. Mm, makes sense. So, but this is just starting up, right? This is the stuff that's happening right now. So I don't right. know how ready it is for production and stuff. But this—that's the stuff that excites me, and still, uh, that kind of re-sparked my excitement and stuff happening in Ruby. I would say.
0: Cool. So, are you building the Liquid VM uh, project in Rust then, or are you doing it in Ruby? Yep. Yeah,
1: yeah. This is this project is a big project that we have that is built in Rust. Uh, we have some other parts too, like in uh, Shopify, like a All around Shopify that are built, but we are like that's, I think that was one of the biggest Mm projects that is built in Rust uh, and also using WebAssembly. So we're we're compiling Liquid to WebAssembly itself. And we have other parts. If you know a little bit about Shopify, the platform, we Uh have some extension points, like you can, we call it Shopify functions. You can just, it's like a bit like, think of it like a callback, right? There was a, mm-hmm. there's a refund or something that you trigger a callback. Well, this callback, you you can hook it. Any, any merchant can hook into it. And the way you hook into it is you write, you compile to WebAssembly and upload the function to Shopify. So we, this other part also is coded in Rust at, uh, at Shopify. So we nice. got those two areas that are very similar, like conceptually, right? Compiling liquid and compiling functions that are built in Rust and WebAssembly. So very, very cool stuff that's happening. I think it's are really, really cool technology that
0: we use. Wow. Well, I'll have to dive into that because, yeah, I've got some stuff that I'm working on. And and yeah, some of it may, may be able to use some of that stuff to get some of those features, the thread safety and the speed and the efficiency, memory, all that good stuff. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I think I would like I encourage everybody to try Ractors because I think Ractors now there was a call to I think it was a Kaigi, I just saw it online I was not there right mm-hmm. but somebody at work sent me the link to the video and then I think the problem they're running into is that nobody is using Ractors so, so they, right. and they because there nobody is using Ractors they don't get better and because they right they mm-hmm. don't get and nobody is using them because they're right. not getting better so we're inside we're in this just like we're in this yeah. vicious cycle.
0: And then people complain that we don't have better concurrency functionality. Exactly.
1: So we're at the point where we can make this happen, but it's kind of a I don't know. I don't know. I don't want (laughs) to. I'm not going to be the one to drive the community forward to this. But that's kind of that's that's something I think that needs to be driven forward to people. Maybe like it could be just start a new server or try to use it for something else. It's not clear to me like if reactors are just like for. You, I think there are like two approaches. Maybe you could run like your full app into a Ractor. That could be like mm-hmm. your web app, or you could just use it like a some sort of background job system or something like. Right. You have just some parts. you say, oh, because the problem with Ractors, right? You cannot, you, you cannot pass any objects you want, right? You you can mm-hmm. only pass frozen objects that are Ractor safe. So you, if you pass a string, for example, you need to freeze it first. You cannot modify it afterwards. You can still. You can freeze it, pass it to the director, and then copy it and then modify it, but you cannot have mm-hmm. the shared reference, right? That that kind of, that, that that's the, you cannot do that, right? right? Because you have a shared pointer, shared uh, memory reference, right. and then uh, race conditions. Uh, so there are lots of it. So it's very hard, much harder. It's much closer to uh, like languages like Rust force mm-hmm. you to think about it. It's just that in Ruby, it's, we kind of, uh, it's the first time that we have to think of this way, but I think right. if you're coming from Rust, you know about those paradigms of send and sync, and the compiler you're like making your job really hard to make forcing you to think about making your code thread safe. I think that's a mm-hmm. really good step towards like taking in a world of where we could make reactors work fully.
0: Cool. Well, maybe I'll go play with them
1: maybe yeah it, it it does it does feel like me I'm very excited about this because it does feel like again, like like I said, it comes back to when I started thin like sixteen years ago, right where there are key technologies around right yeah we had rack, we had like mm-hmm. regular parser that we talked about, like and we had even machine, and I do feel like we're seeing something again like this happening where right we we have like there's rust that allows to build thread safe native extension, we right. have rectors coming up, we have the many threads coming for to to give us green threads. It's just that nobody's doing like the connective work, like the glue, right, between them, right? And the key, and driving those stuff forward, right? We I mentioned Samuel Wins before. He did lots of work to push forward the usage of fibers, and that's mainly right. because of him. Now that we have the fiber scheduler and lots of cool stuff, so that is a cool thing. But I think something else needs to happen, like on the reactor side, mm-hmm. um, yep. because there's just one people working now in the Ruby core team. Uh, on this, those two things the same. I think, I think it's, I don't want to say it wrong, but uh, Koichi working on both Rectors and the main dress, mm-hmm. right? It's just one person yeah. working on all of this. So, we do, we do like at Shopify I have a big team working on helping like driving a Ruby forward. But, uh, I mean, it, we do, we also need like other people with use cases to use those technology to, to drive forward. Yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, I think we're in a very exciting time, or I'm really hopeful oh, yeah. for stuff to come. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm hoping to drive forward with the upcoming projects. But I yeah, I'm hoping that people like watching this get excited about Reactors, like and mm-hmm. like native extension. All of this, I think, to me in my mind, it's pretty clear. It's all linked together. But if you don't yeah. see, it, you should definitely try those technologies. I hope you you, you get it and that sparks some interest into so, like uh, cool projects.
0: Yep. Awesome. Now, I know that you've written about some of this stuff on your blog, like I saw an uh, article on Rust and some of this other stuff. If, if people want to see what you're working on or connect with you, is there a good place for them to find you? Uh,
1: well, I feel very old now. I'm just going to say, write me an email. Yeah, I'm not, I don't, I'm not very active. <laughs> online. You mentioned my blog. I don't think I've looked at it for 10 years or something like that. Oh, so okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very I'm very happy to help anybody or to just if you have questions about this stuff, or just write me an email. But yeah.
0: Gmail.com. Yeah. Awesome. All right, well, I'm going to kind of roll us into picks and start wrapping us up. so, yeah. I'll go ahead and jump in with my picks first. So, I tend to pick board games as as a pick every time. Um, lately, uh, a game that my wife and I have been playing, playing a whole bunch now at, at my house, it's Disney and Harry Potter. Uh, that That's what we're into that, you know, kind of a fun uh, thing. And there's a game called Death Eaters Rising. And uh, effectively you, it's a dice game. You roll the dice and then, um, you, you try and match them up with cards to earn the cards or you know, fight the villains or whatever, right? And then eventually Voldemort comes out, and you have to fight him too. And uh, anyway, it's it's pretty fun. Um, half it, the time you I'm playing with
1: family with your kids, yeah,
0: yes. Oh, and cool. then about half the time I'm playing with the family, and the other half of the time it's just my wife and I. So okay, and uh, yeah, let me look up on Board Game Geek so I can tell you all how hard it is to play. It's it's not terribly hard to play. Yeah, it's a board game weight of two point three seven. And I tell people that kind of the casual game with a little bit of complexity is about a two. So anyway, this is something that people can definitely pick up. Usually it takes us about an hour, maybe a little longer to, to beat it. Um, you can play two to four players. Um, what I found is once you get to the fourth player, so you're starting uh, Wizards. Um, that So you pick a team. So it's Dumbledore's Army or uh, Hogwarts or what's the other one? Order of the Phoenix. And each of them have two starting cards. But the starting card abilities for uh, one of each of those teams is if you have another uh, wizard uh, from that team, you get an extra die to roll. And then um, the other card is if you have a wizard from a specific one of the other teams, then you get an extra die to roll. But you get extra, you get an extra die of the color or suit or whatever you want to call it, team. That you're that you're on and so it's a lot easier to get wizards that are on the same team as your team and so at least initially and so um, once you get that fourth player in then th- that fourth person is a little bit disadvantaged because they're playing with a wizard who gets their bonus off of a, another wizard that isn't as is easy for them to acquire um, so three three is a little bit better than four and it's like then' playing a little bit. No, you just roll the dice. You, you okay. choose, you move, um, you, you know, Voldemort, you know, attacks a specific area, right, does that thing there, um, and then you roll the dice and you can either acquire wizards or recruit wizards or you can um, attack Death Eaters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you have to have five Death Eaters before you can completely do all five damage to Voldemort. And you lose if you lose... Because the, the Wizards all take damage um, for different things. And so if if you lose eight Wizards, you lose. Um, if you lose um, one location entirely, you lose. Or if you lose four location cards, you also lose. Um, so yeah, anyway, it's it's fun. It's It's just hard enough to be interesting, but it's not so hard that it's impossible to win. And I think we win more often than we lose but anyway it's a lot of fun it's a cooperative game Um, so I'm going to pick that I'll put links um, in the YouTube and Facebook comments um, to the game and then yeah I'll also get the Amazon affiliate if you click the Amazon link it doesn't cost you anymore but I do get a little bit of money for that Um, and then I'm going to just pick a couple of other things so earlier this year um, my wife and I went and saw a movie called The Shift. And anyway, it was awesome. It's basically, um, the devil trying to win over this particular guy. And, but it's like sci fi and stuff. So it's, a, anyway, it was a really interesting twist. I don't want to give away the story, but anyway, um, yeah. Uh, awesome stuff. So, um, Definitely go see the shift if you get a chance. Um, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And then um, there was something else I was going to pick. Oh, I was going to shout out about the Ruby Dev Summit. So I've interviewed, I think by the time I'm done, I'm going to have interviewed 22 or 23 people. And I've got core team members from Ruby. I've got people who do Rails. I've got other podcasters. I've got people who work on like, uh, Ruby's infrastructure and ecosystem. So definitely go check it out. You can go find it at rubydevsummit.com. Um, you can enter your email address for free and then it'll e- I'll email you when the talks are coming out. Um, if you want early access, you can sign up for a subscription on Top End Devs and that'll give you early access, but you don't have to do that. So, you know, that, that's up to you. Um, those talks will be coming out if you want to watch them during the window, they're available um, the second week in February. So, anyway, uh, that's that's all the stuff I've got. Mark, uh, what what picks do you have?
1: Picks? Um, well, I can pick like uh, three of my shop- uh, favorite like Shopify merchants. Their tree like that cool. two that I consume I can that. like a lot. Like there's one for my my uh, my my coffee shop. It's that they deliver coffee. It's maybe it's a bit too local, but it's a cafe. It's in Montreal. If you're cafebarista.ca, if you're there, it's really good. They have lots of, they have equipment and machine. It's really amazing. And my second store, like is, which is my, (laughs) where I spend a bit too much money. It's called Moog Audio. If you're into music or musical instrument, this is amazing. Like, was just like, um, there's an instrument that was released by Teenage Engineer a few weeks ago. I think it's called like KO2. It's like a sampler. If you're into those things, like it looks like a calculator. The design is beautiful. Like it's a sampler it's, it's very thin and the design of it like the, uh, it's, it's amazing just it's just nice to look at and it's I think it's the first time they release something that is not too expensive usually they, they release project that are thousands of dollars this one mm-hmm. I think is a bit is a lot cheaper it's kind of their cheapest like, sampler so if you if you want to sort of a gateway drug into that like it, look at it on mobile.com and finally is where I drink I drink lots of coffee but I also drink lots of tea. And I order it from uh, online from uh, Firebelly Tea, which was started by the, uh, it was uh, co founded by the president of Shopify, um, Oh, cool. Early, and it's a really good tea. And it's also founded by the uh, other guy like, that started David's Tea in Canada. I don't know if he got to the US, but it's very, it was very popular in Canada and Quebec. And the, the tea is really good. So firebellytea.ca. Those are the three, three favorite uh, Shopify merchants.
0: Nice. If you want to type those into the chat, then oh, I will make yeah. sure that they end up in the, um, yeah. And then, yeah, um, beyond that, I am getting videos out now for uh, Rails clips and, and Ruby bits. And so the Ruby bits, I'm starting to write the V and Dragon Ruby, <laughs> which is something that I've always wanted to do. So I'm excited about that. And uh, my kids all think that's cool, too. Dad's writing a video game. Um, I'm trying to keep it simple, but I'm also trying to keep it kind of fun and funny. So, anyway, um, we'll, we'll see how far we get on that and what, what challenges I run into. Um, on the Rails clips, I am building out Rails Composer, uh, railscomposer.com. And effectively, the idea is is that um, I want Rails, which David has said he wants it to be a single developer framework, right? So a single developer can make Boop. considerable progress on an app. So so the plan is, is I want Rails to be a single developer um, experience, like DHH has said, but I want it to be a single developer experience if you're building SaaS. And so Rails Composer is going to be the pieces that you would compose to build a SaaS, right? So you build out, let's say you're building something for podcasters, you build the piece that's the four podcasters piece, and then you can pull in the rest of the pieces, which are user management, permissions management, and um, payment and payment management, and your sales dashboard, and those kinds of things that you need to run your SaaS, but you shouldn't have to actually write, right? I want you to be able to put each piece in, in less than an hour, so your first day is essentially, I've got everything together except for what I'm selling, if that makes sense, right? And and also marketing pieces, so I'm also looking at like SEO and blah a blog engine and things like that that just plug into your layout neatly so anyway um but i'm building the the i'm actually building out RailsComposer.com first as a ruby clips series so anyway uh go check that out and yeah this was fun it was good to catch up mark hey likewise thanks a lot for the invite